The Pat Kenny Show on News Talk with Matter Private Network. During current restrictions, don't ignore your health concerns. Our expert team is ready to help. It's good morning to Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin. Luke, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Now, we've been talking about a lot of very successful science over the last few months, but there has been one notable failure on vaccine uh, development. What was it? Yeah, there's still loads of vaccines being tested, Fed, amazingly. Probably four or five are, are still running in trials and so on. But one of them, CureVac, and that was one we were kind of waiting for. It's an RNA vaccine, just like Pfizer and Moderna. But sadly, it didn't work. And it just shows you, Pat, these things aren't a definite. You know, the, a 40,000 patient trial, so a massive trial was done, and they got 47% efficacy, which, of course, is a lot lower than the, the gold standard now, up around the 90s. You know, so, so the big question is, of course, the, the company themselves are scratching their heads. They spent loads of money on the trial and why wouldn't it work because it's an RNA vaccine just like Pfizer and Moderna and yet it hasn't hit that level although mind you Pat 47% isn't bad strangely that the flu vaccine every year is around 50% but even still in the in the intensely competitive uh, you know world of, of COVID vaccines it's seen as a bit of a flop it must be said Now what about the um development of it, the same one would presume as Pfizer or Moderna. So what do they think went wrong? Yeah, there are a few ideas. I mean, obviously, it's, it's a very interesting scientific question. Why would another RNA vaccine not work, you know? And uh, the first thing is, is, is it these variants they're wondering? Because, of course, when they ran their trial, the variants were around, you know, whereas the previous trials with Pfizer and Moderna, there weren't any variants. There was only one main variant at that time, you know? So, so what the company is saying themselves, they're wondering have these variants sort of made, made this less efficacious? Of course, the argument is that well, Pfizer is working against variants, so that can't really be the answer. They're, they're wondering, you know, that well, that may not explain it. A big one is dose, Pat. They're wondering that they get the dose slightly wrong, which can happen in trials, by the way, because you pick a dose and you obviously you pick it based on certain criteria. They noticed that a high dose that gave a very strong antibody response, they noticed there was a few more side effects in terms of, you know, the flu-like symptoms. So they ramped the dose down, got a less strong antibody response than, say, Pfizer would have achieved, and so therefore maybe there was less, less efficacy for that reason. The second thing is the RNA is slightly different. So even though they're, they're, they're the same as Pfizer as an RNA vaccine, there's a, there's a thing called uridine in the CureVac RNA, whereas it's pseudouridine in the Pfizer one. And that might make a difference they think, because if you have pseudouridine you can get away with a higher dose and less, less uh, you know, side effects. So that's another reason they think it might be the case. But of course they're very interested in trying to find this out. Um. So this might have a role going forward if they can sort out that problem if they can get the dose right. Um, but that all remains to be seen. That's right. Yeah, the other thing was, Pat, they, they said it was going to store more readily at higher temperatures and then it turns out maybe there was some breakdown of the vaccine at the higher temperatures and that might have given rise to some of the side effects as well. So now they're wondering now if they can get it. And of course, they're still doing it, by the way. They've spent a lot of effort, haven't they? So they're going to go back to the drawing board, kind of, and then maybe put, put pseudouridine in instead of uridine, for instance, change the storage, and then it might be fine. You know, it might be as good as the other ones. And they were, it's a German company, Pat, by the way, and the EU was going to order millions of doses of this. They were getting ready to order it. Just you know, if everything went well, they would have ordered an awful lot of it, you know. And then secondly, it's not cheaper. So the view was this might be use of the developing world. So they're not going to give up, basically. As ever in, in this game, you know, you, you, kind of, you get back up on the horse again and try again, basically, you know. So they may well be able to fix it and make it into a, as efficacious a vaccine as Pfizer. And it would be great to have a European one. This would be the only European RNA vaccine you see. So it would make sense for them now to go back and see if they, could, they can make it, make it better than it was. 
Um, any vacuum, of course, will be filled by somebody else. Um, news from Novavax uh, from Maryland in the US. Yeah, well, remember, Pfizer and Moderna are ramping up production anyway, so, so they will fill any gaps that CureVac might have filled, is the first thing they're saying. And then this other one, Novavax worked, remember, that was about, I think, three weeks, two, three weeks ago now. Novavax is another vaccine that gave 90% efficacy. So, in other words, there's no shortage of vaccines, basically. Can you imagine, Pat, if this had been the only vaccine we had? Then we would have mm-hmm. been in slightly more worried, wouldn't we? If, if this was the first to report, we would have gone, oh dear, this isn't going quite so well. But the fact there's other vaccines out there means it won't really impact ultimately on vaccine supply, really. Now, everyone is concerned about the uh, Delta variant and uh, the, the fact that it seems to transmit more readily and it is the dominant, completely dominant variant now in the UK. Uh, the symptoms may be different between the uh, the old what was it, the Kent variant, Alpha variant now called, and this Delta variant formerly called the Indian variant. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's, there's like dispatches from the front line. They're noticing that people who report and their test positive for Delta, they have slightly different symptoms. So the virus has changed a little bit, obviously. It's more transmissible for definite. And the question now is, there's other changes as well, remember, and, and these are being mapped in various ways. But they're noticing the symptoms are different. You're less likely to lose your t- sense of smell or taste, they've noticed, with the Delta variant. And obviously that was a big hallmark of the earlier variants were causing loss of sense of smell and taste. They're worried slightly because the symptoms are like a, a summer cold, they're calling it. You know, you get a bit of a runny yeah. nose, sore throat, bit of a headache, you know, and it's a, a mild cold type thing. And of course, they're worrying now that people will have colds, they'll actually have Delta. They won't notice any difference from a cold, say, and now they're still in the community and still spreading it. So it's a slight concern, but it's a work in progress as ever with these things. They're just, they're just monitoring this as they go along kind of thing, you know. And then the big question is, it could be because there's younger people are getting it, remember, and they've got better immune systems anyway, and it won't get as strong in terms of some of the symptomology or milder in young people anyway. That could be another reason for this. It doesn't have to be the virus itself that's causing this shift in symptoms. It could be the nature of the people being infected. But it's interesting, but isn't it, that they're measuring, in the UK, you see they're, they're playing a blinder in many ways because they're measuring this very closely. They're getting the symptoms listed, you see, and, and just checking. But it does seem to be slightly different from the previous variants. Okay, but uh, still, when people are trying to monitor their themselves and they haven't had vaccinations, um, they still are going to have some common symptoms for COVID. They will, yeah. And, and the, the, the advice still is, if you have any symptoms, you should go and get a test, you see. But will, will young people do that is the question. They might just shrug it off and have a cold-type symptoms for three or four days. I mean, this is why it's spreading so widely, probably, because it's in younger people who are mixing and mingling and they've got very mild, if any, symptoms. Now it spreads, which isn't a bad thing, by the way, because it means they'll build up immunity, you know. And if the vulnerable are vaccinated, the risk of them then infecting someone who gets really sick is less, you know. So, But these, this is all being watched very closely. But the guidelines still still stay the same. If you have any kind of symptoms, cough, temperature, and a, a, loss, a loss of smell anyway, you know, make sure then you go and you get the PCR test as the idea and get checked out. Now, among the most vulnerable groups that uh, were being called for early vaccinations would be those who were uh, transplant patients whose immune systems had been deliberately dialed down to allow them to accept uh, new organs. And people were a bit despondent that maybe vaccines would not be applicable to them because if your immune system is dialed down, it's not going to respond. That, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it was always a concern that if you're a transplant patient, you'd be on an immunosuppressant and that would mean you're at risk of catching the virus, first of all. But secondly, the vaccine mightn't work because obviously the vaccine wants to get your immune system going. And if you're on immunosuppressants, there's a slight you know, concern that they wouldn't be vaccinatable, if you will, if, you, if you're a transplant. And what's amazing, Pat, is in the US now, you know, they've got 45 
25% are fully vaccinated, which is an incredible achievement in the US for a start. And they can look at all these different types of patients and subgroups. We're talking like 200 million people have been vaccinated, something like that. But the transplant group, they did worry. And they noticed that initially they, they didn't have a good antibody response. You know, 17% made antibodies after the first shot of Pfizer. It went to 54% with the second. But of course, if you're not a transplant patient, you're up around the 1995%. So that was a concern. And then they noticed that some transplant patients were going for a third shot. In America, you can walk into a pharmacy pad and just get a vaccine. It's very straightforward. Yeah. And you can mix and match, by the way, as well in America. So that just shows you how advanced they are. So some were just going in and getting a third shot because they were slightly worried themselves. And then they volunteered for their blood to be assessed, you see. And then the doctors in Johns Hopkins said, great, come on in. We'll take a blood sample. And lo and behold, at the third shot, gave a big antibody response. And that's why it was a headline. So in other words, the vaccines are, are so powerful that even in a transplanted patient who's on an immunosuppressant, if you take a third shot, you will get a dramatic immune response against the virus. And this is reassuring, obviously, for, for transplant patients for a start. But I think for me, Pat, it also means the boosters are going to work great. You know, we've got to get ready yeah. in the autumn now for booster shots for definite, you see. That's the third shot. And we know it's going to be tremendously strong. And, and this evidence from these transplant patients shows how a third shot can have a huge immune enhancing effect, which is a good thing. But, but at least transplant patients don't need to worry as much now. And of course, in France, the, ahead of the game, Pat, they've, they're given the third shot to transplant patients already because they kind of guessed that this would be useful for them, you know. So we may see transplant patients being among the first to get the booster, if you know what I mean. The third shot may go into the vulnerable first. Now, you mentioned in America that you can mix and match uh, vaccines because you can literally walk in and get one. Any further news from the EMA on all of this? Because I saw a paper in The Lancet when I was Googling, and uh, I think it was dated about a week ago, saying that, yeah, you can mix and match, and the the evidence is that you get a, a stronger response. Some people might object to it because you could be a bit symptomatic, a bit, you know, nausea, maybe a bit of pain, headache and that. But that means you're getting a better reaction. Yep. So that's right. And yeah. they say just take paracetamol and, and that'll eliminate that. You can see what's coming, Pat. The boosters will be RNA vaccines, let's put it that way, you know. So it doesn't matter what you had first, but when you go for your third shot, it'll be an RNA vaccine, whether you've had AstraZeneca or not as your first shot, you know. So that, that'll, that's likely to be the case in the autumn. Whether they issue a, a, a more soon a directive to say you can take any vaccine second after the first, that might come sooner, you know. I think I'd be pretty confident that there will be mixing and matching will be allowed. I guess like building up the data, they're, they're watching it closely. There are trials, uh, studies running now just to see everything's fine, you know. And as you say, the current, the latest reports are it's fine to mix and match. And if anything, you get a stronger response with the second shot, you see. It's just about supply, though, in a sense. If there's enough AstraZeneca to give a second shot to everybody, that's fine because everybody's protected then, you know. But I can see I can see the, the, the third shot, if you will, being, being an RNA vaccine, irregardless of what, whatever you had first. There was a story, I think, in the examiner from one of the uh, medics, uh, an Irish eminent person who uh, suggested that you shouldn't give the AstraZeneca too close to the first dose because you won't just get the, the benefit. You've got to wait at least eight weeks. Yeah, you'd, well, yeah, I mean, it's four, four weeks anyway, minimum, they're saying. You know, it, it takes four weeks to wake up the immune system, basically, because the immune system has to get going, doesn't it? You know, And after four weeks or so, now it's fully awake, if you will, and then you give the second shot and it really then is galvanised. You know, that's the way to think of it. So, But if you leave it too long, of course, it might go off. And it's a, it's a bit of an empirical thing. You know, they, they, they've tried a diff, different uh, weeks between different jabs and so on, but, uh, but they're pretty clear now. If you wait four weeks, it should be 
be fine. You see, to get the second shot, and then the booster can be given then maybe three, four, or five months later because the second shot has really stimulated the whole system, and that'll endure for months. You know, so it's it's kind of um, as ever part of science, science in action in many ways, isn't it? We've never seen the like of this, have we? This sort of uh, being being watched very closely, and we're getting more and more information all the time. Now, on Thursday, you were mentioning uh, when uh, the whole thing about Tony Holland and antigen testing and his reluctance to embrace it in the way other countries have. And you kind of laid it out, um, sort of step one, step two, step three, for Tony Holland and his colleagues in the Sunday Independent yesterday by suggesting that they simply look to Canada. Yeah, exactly. I I came across the Canadian stuff on Wednesday. I was was doing a bit of searching and I said, this is the country that's got it right. You know, Uh, they they invested in pilot programs. They put millions of antigen tests into businesses. They'd evidence that they stopped 11,000 cases, you see. Now, that's a lot lot of cases to spot, you see. Those 11,000 could end up infecting 100,000, you know, cases, you see. So so there's really good evidence it was working. And now off they go and they have this, um, it's a phrase that we see, Team Canada, you know, all the businesses and the chambers of commerce are all involved, you know. They've even got a special programme for Indigenous people who are less harder to reach with these sorts of things, you see. So, so yeah, my view was, let, let's just do what they did, basically, because obviously the Canadians are very smart people. And, and and by the way, they also commissioned had two really detailed reports, which said, do this, like we did. You know, we had our Ferguson report, of course, you know. So, so I felt it was a very good country to compare us to in many ways. And if we were to, to devolve responsibility to them, Pat, it might be easier for us, you know. Now, a, a couple of questions. Um, this one says, does Professor Luke O'Neill have uh, any update on Johnson & Johnson against Delta? Will Johnson & Johnson recipients get a booster uh, soon? And uh, just to add to that, I heard the Taunashda yesterday saying that, you know, the best thing, the cleverest thing to do is don't travel abroad unless you're vaccinated. But you, of course you can, but, you know, monitor your own behaviour and be careful with all your testing. But he also said, you know, if you've won Johnson and Johnson, off you go. I know. Yeah, and that's, that's I, right. I remember you and I saying that Johnson and Johnson one jab doesn't give you much more protection, if any, than AstraZeneca one jab. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean there's less experience with it is the problem in a sense. So we haven't got as much data on that one. And there's no report yet on whether that protects against Delta. But we can anticipate it should because because it's just like AstraZeneca, really. And as the weeks go by, you see your immune system gets a bit stronger anyway, you know, and even one shot, you'll see a build-up of immunity over time, you know. Now, whether they recommend, I, I predict they will give a booster for Johnson & Johnson, because remember, why wouldn't you? Because it's going to really work well then, you know. But the trouble is, it's still, a, the data is still being analysed on Johnson & Johnson, because it's not used as widely as, as the other ones yet. But as I say, we can be somewhat optimistic that it should be fine. It'll certainly give you months of protection, you know, if you have a single shot, you should be okay for a few months is the idea. Yeah. Um, people asking about the AstraZeneca protecting you from Delta. Many rumours going around saying that it doesn't protect as well. Well, all we can do is look at what we heard in the UK about the issue. The report, I think, was mm-hmm. we, over a week ago now where you're 71% protected with one shot of AstraZeneca and it gets up to over 90% with the second shot against Delta. Now, what they're measuring there is rate of hospitalisation, which is the key thing to look at, of course, in severe disease. Yeah. You might still get infected if you have AstraZeneca, but it'll be mild and it won't progress into severe disease. And, and the AstraZeneca vaccine achieves that. They, they Both it, now Pfizer again was slightly better. It was 92% after the first shot, 96 after the second. But after the second shot of AstraZeneca, it was up, up around the same range as Pfizer. So, so it really does protect against Delta.
As someone else asking, will antigen tests uh, show up variants like Delta? They do, yeah. yeah. So, uh, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, for my piece on Sun, the Sunday Independent, I looked into that closely. So several of the tests definitely do pick up Delta, you see. Now, whether they all do, I don't know. I wasn't able to look at all the tests, obviously. But certainly several of the tests, they're not measuring the spike, you see, which is the thing that changes a lot. You know, Some of those antigen tests are against other proteins in, in, um, in SARS-CoV-2, so they, they, pick up, they should pick up Delta. Uh, could you ask Professor O'Neill, does he know what's happening with FDA approval or not for AstraZeneca? Yeah, well, they did. I think they did approve. They did approve. There's emergency use, I think, to some extent, at least in certain situations. But they haven't given it the full approval yet, and they're under pressure now to sort of approve it, and they're dragging their heels a bit. So I think it's a bit of a work in progress. But unless I'm mistaken, there's 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 a minor approval if you say for certain groups can use it. I think, but of course, nowhere near as widespread as the other ones. So still, they're still examining it. I guess is the answer to that one. Um, someone else wants to know about the scheduling of injections, but that's not uh, uh, your area, uh, Luke, so I won't bother with that one. Uh, can you ask Luke what he thinks of the use of ivermectin as a treatment? We talked about that before. Still no news? That remains a fascination, Fab, because there's a lot of stuff on that. I mean, there was stuff in the lab, first of all. It can kill the virus. They showed that experimentally in a lab. Australian lab was the first to show that, by the way. And even at a mechanism, it seems to interfere with a particular sort of process in the virus's life cycle, if you will. So there's, there's good, there's reasonable rationale behind it. The trouble is lots of trials were run that weren't seen as gold standard double blind placebo that worried people slightly, you know. But there are trials running now. I mean, it could be a great thing because it's extremely cheap, you see. So I'm waiting now for the definitive trial. You've got to be careful with trials. There's no point doing a trial with 100 people and not having a proper control and, mm. and these kinds of things, you know. And some of those trials have been criticised. Now, because others are saying, oh, you're criticising them because it's a cheap drug and you see the conspiracy theorists there a bit behind that one. But certainly there's evidence growing ivermectin could be part of it. And you never know. I mean, I think it'll be really important that when we get to the autumn that we have even better treatments in hospital just in case some of these things break through and people yeah. end up in hospital, you can treat them. And ivermectin could well be part. But I, I'm waiting. I'm, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it yet with ivermectin. I want to see the uh, definitive okay. trial. And, and that same question we're asking you about uh, some reports of high levels of spike protein in females in the ovaries 36 hours after taking the RNA vaccines. Have you come across that I kind have. of thing? Yeah, no, that kind of thing is, you know, I've seen that report in a couple of places. Again, um, the regulators would have looked at that closely and remember if you launch a new product like a vaccine they've measured all of that during the safety phase to see if the drug or the vaccine's building up in tissues or causing untoward effects and that was all clean you see from the EMA would have looked at that closely so so where those reports are coming from I'm not sure but certainly the EMA and the FDA would have looked at that extremely closely to make sure there isn't any side effect along those lines which could be damaging and they wouldn't have approved it Pat if there was evidence for that you see so but again that, those reports are there and they're, they're hard to evaluate at one level you know but certainly we, we depend on the EMA to protect us let's put it that way that's their job you know to make sure nothing untoward is happening and we trust them you know and, and, and that's the case with that particular question uh, Is it okay to take a steroid inhaler after been given the AstraZeneca vaccine? I wouldn't, I wouldn't see why not actually yeah those, those inhalers are pretty standard for certain diseases and so on they don't cause massive immunosuppression that's the important thing there they have a localised anti-inflammatory effect you see is why you take them so yeah. but in general terms they, they're not, they're not going to suppress you the ones you wonder about are the ones on chronic long term immunosuppressants like transplant patients for instance mm-hmm. they're the ones you would worry about because their immune system is being really repressed you see but now as we just said earlier the, the third shot breaks through that immunosuppression which is great Uh, Can you ask, Luke, if toddlers will get the same dose as rugby players? (laughs) 
If if it's if given yeah. the go ahead for for uh, the vaccination of that, very young children, that's a great question. Yeah, but I think usually the dose is standardised across all. They sometimes change the dose if you're heavier and make it you know per you know your weight basically. But usually the dose is set for everybody and it's the same because it works for there's a lower limit basically and it works for everybody. You know. I'm working in healthcare. I'm fully vaccinated earlier this year. Will I still need to get the booster? That's from Declan and Carlo. That's a great question. We don't know yet. I mean, as I say, it's it's still, we're in the thick of it in some ways. You know, now, because the variants are there and there might be extra variants coming along and there's always a risk of that, remember, it makes sense then to consider a booster shot. But the ones who will get the booster will be the vulnerable, the ones who are high risk, basically, and that might be older people, mm. certain disease, or healthcare workers because they're, they're at risk of being exposed, you see, in the hospital setting. So, so if, when, I think when boosters come, and I suspect they will come, it'll be for certain groups only. We're not going to all get revaccinated, basically. Again, like we did already, it'll just be these these more vulnerable groups. And a final one. This is a fascinating one. Some people who have had COVID have no symptoms at all. Some that are vaccinated get no reaction. Is there a connection? I had a really strong immune response to vaccination. Does that mean that if I had got COVID, I would have been more affected by COVID? It's very variable. I mean, people's immune systems are all very different, you see. No more than anything else in our bodies, we, we have big differences between us in terms of our immune systems. So you do see this range of effects, you know, and even even if you've no symptoms, it doesn't mean you ha- you're not mounting an immune response. Certain parts of the immune system give you symptoms, others don't, you see. So you might have a less 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 active sort of one part and a more active other part. So it's a very complicated thing in many ways. You know, it's not, it's not as if one size fits all. All right, Luke, on that note, uh, Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College in Dublin, uh, thank you very much for joining us.